0: And looking to verses 10 and 11 of First Peter chapter 4, I want to preach a message I've entitled, Ministering as Stewards of God's Gracious Gifts. Ministering as Stewards of God's Gracious Gifts. First Peter chapter 4 verse 10. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And you'll notice, looking back to verse 8, that this is the third time within three verses that Peter emphasizes the need for believers to love and serve one another. In verse 8, Peter says, Above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. In verse 9, Peter says, Use hospitality one to another without grudging. And now in verse 10, Peter says, As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another. Now question, why do you suppose that Peter is highlighting the fact that God's people ought to be actively engaged in loving and serving one another? Well, I'm persuaded that there are two fundamental reasons why God, through Peter, is pressing this specific truth. Behind these three exhortations, I believe there is a doctrinal reason which is connected to a Christian principle, as well as a practical reason connected to a contextual principle that serve as strong motivations regarding why Peter is saying what he is saying. Beginning with the doctrinal reason, which is connected to the Christian principle, you will recall Jesus saying that the summation of the law and the prophets involves loving God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength, while at the same time striving to love our neighbors as ourselves. This is the essence of the Christian faith. This is Christianity in a nutshell. The essence of the Christian faith involves living unto God while doing good to others. Now, to be clear, doing good to others does not make us Christian, nor does it make us worthy of going to heaven because the Bible says that there is none good, no, not one lest you take what Christ says and turn it into some sort of false gospel, let me make sure that all of us understand this morning that the Bible says we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is not a just man on earth that does good and sins not. The Bible makes it clear that because of our sin against God, each and every one of us deserve to be punished for all of eternity. And that being said, it's vital that we understand that salvation does not rest in any work we do for God or others. Salvation is not of works. Salvation is of grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Titus 3, 5, Not of works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saves us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Now listen, doing good to others will never earn you a place in heaven. And if it could, then Jesus' death on the cross was an absolute waste of time. It means that the whole of Christ's life, ministry, and teaching was unneeded. And it also means, if salvation could be of works, that God is a liar. Because God's word says that without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness of sin. So does everybody have this truth in their mind? Being good and doing good does not make you a Christian. Being good and doing good will never justify you in the sight of God. We are justified by faith. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, God in the flesh, who is the way, the truth, and the life, the only one that is good, has come to become sin for us who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus Christ is the mediator between holy God and sinful men. And it's only through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection that we have eternal life. And this is what the true biblical gospel is. The true biblical gospel is not about striving to be a better person. It's about God in Christ, by the power of His Spirit, delivering you from the bondage of sin. So if you leave here this morning only remembering one truth, let it be this truth that has been repeated by preachers throughout the century. Salvation is not a reward for the righteous. Salvation is a gift for the guilty. Christianity is not about good people doing good. Christianity is about God seeking lost people. God saving evil people. God causing spiritually blind and dead people to live. And if you are here this morning still thinking yourself to be good and deserving of heaven because you pray, you help others, you've never murdered anyone, you've never been to jail, you've always strived to be a good citizen, let me just tell you that you are spiritually blind, you do not know what it means to be a Christian, and you need to be born again. I do not say this to hurt you, but to help you. George Whitfield says, most churches preach heathen morality rather than the gospel of Jesus Christ. God forbid that you should come into this building thinking that it is through the doing of actions that make ourselves right with God. God forbid we are justified only through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the great physician Who alone can heal your soul? You add nothing to it. So having laid down this imperative truth, let me again reiterate that the essence of the Christian faith involves living under God while doing good to others. And if we are in Christ, the Bible assumes that we will be like Christ, laying down our lives for others. Because Jesus did not come to be ministered unto, but to minister and give his life a ransom for many. And God makes it clear in the scriptures that believers tangibly serve Christ by serving others. This is the doctrinal reason for Peter's exhortations. He's assuming that those who have come to faith in Christ will show forth their faith by their works, because faith alone, James tells us, means nothing. And then as Peter writes this letter to the saints, he is writing with the presumption that they have a desire to obey God's word sincerely and strive to emulate Christ's example steadfastly. So that's the doctrinal reason. Turning from the doctrinal motivation behind Peter's commands to serve one another to the practical, contextual reasons, once again, I want you to think about the context of 1 Peter and specifically the temptation every person faces when they are going through difficult times. As Peter pins these commands to suffering believers who are enduring great trials for the cause of Christ, he knows as a man that it is possible for those who will receive this letter to develop a self-centered, self-indulgent, arrogant attitude that distances itself from others. Come on, Peter knows about this personally. Don't forget that after Jesus was crucified, Peter went back to the shore by himself. Going back to the shore... He felt discouraged, disappointed, confused, and tired. And do you remember how Christ approached Peter? In the midst of his sulking, Christ approached Peter. And Jesus came to Peter in that instance and said, Peter, do you love me? Of course I love you. Peter, let me ask you again. Do you love me? Lord, you know all things. I love you. Peter, I know I have to do everything in threes for you, so let me ask a third time. Do you love me? And then what did Jesus say? Don't say it, Peter. Show it. Feed my sheep. Peter, if you love me, stop sitting around having a pity party. Go serve others. Stop feeling sorry for yourself and pick up the towel that you cast aside. And this is exactly what suffering saints need to hear in the midst of their trials and troubles. What we need to hear is that life is not about us. It's about Christ and His kingdom and others who are a part of that kingdom. So perhaps someone is here today who needs to hear this exact message. Let me be like Jesus and let me be like Peter to press you this morning and say, stop living for yourself and start living for Christ. Stop feeling sorry for yourself and recognize that you are sitting in the midst of others who are suffering in various ways. You are not the only one who has troubles. Let me poke that bubble. That's the practical contextual reason for Peter's commands. Peter really wants to help them as a spiritual minister. He doesn't want them to fall prey to the devil's attacks. He doesn't want them to be a poor representation of christ to unbelievers who are observing their faith remember in this book of first peter there are ungodly masters and ungodly spouses who are watching believers live out their christian life peter's trying to help them in that and peter wants everyone to understand that jesus says by this Shall all men know that you are my disciples, you are my followers, if you have loved one toward another. So these are the motivations regarding why Peter is reiterating the need to love and serve one another. Now, having observed the doctrinal and practical reasons for Peter's repetitive commands to love and serve one another. Zooming in now on our third command, given in verse 10, in my speaking to you about ministering as stewards of God's gracious gifts, I want to focus our attention on three main points of consideration that are underscored in the text. In point number one, I want us to consider the gifts that God gives. In point number two, I want us to consider the type of stewards God wants us to be. And then in point number three, I want us to consider the driving purpose of all of our ministry one toward another. So beginning with point number one, I want you to notice the phrase that Peter uses in the first part of verse 10. Peter says, as every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another. And the natural question that arises from the reading of this exhortation is, what is the gift? Peter goes from talking about hospitality in verse 9 to talking about receiving a gift. So what exactly is the gift that ought to be ministered? Is he talking specifically about the gift of hospitality? Is he talking about the gift of love referred to in verse 8 or perhaps Perhaps he is talking about some spiritual gift that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and Ephesians chapter 4. What is the answer? What is the gift? Well, I'm inclined to think that the answer is yes. When Peter says, as every man hath received the gift, I don't believe he is speaking of a gift in a singular, limited sense, but gifts, plural, in a comprehensive sense. And by this I mean, with every single gift that God gives us, we are to use such gifts to minister to others. And obviously, this begins with the gift of salvation. If God has endowed you with the gift of His saving grace... If God has given you the gift of His saving mercy, His love, His kindness and acceptance through the new birth, then you ought to take that gift and show others the same grace, mercy, love, kindness and acceptance that God has shown you. And this truth is emphasized by Paul Ephesians chapter four, verse 32, "And be ye kind and tender-hearted forgiving one toward another, even even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. That's the standard. That's the motivation. God's given you a gift. The gift is salvation. God has brought you into His kingdom. You were the enemies of God. Now you are the friends of God. Now you have this gift, a gift of eternal life. So now take that gift and demonstrate it to others who don't deserve it. And Christ makes it clear, Luke six thirty six, that God's true children are to be merciful to others as their Father is merciful. So listen this morning. Christ did not give us the gift of eternal life so that we could hide it under a bushel. Christ gave us the gift of eternal light so that we might let our light so shine before who? before men so that they might see our good works and then glorify our Father which is in heaven. As every man hath received the gift of salvation, of grace, of mercy, even so minister the same one to another. And this is the foundation of all other gifts. All other gifts that you might have will mean nothing if you do not minister the gift of the gospel, and not just in your speaking, but in your living, in your striving to be more like Christ, this is the essence. This is the flame of all other gifts. As God has given you the gift of Christ, so show Christ to others. And then in addition to the gift of salvation, that God gives, I think it's safe to assume that what Peter is speaking here refers to the unique spiritual gifts given to every believer. Now, whether you recognize it or not, every Christian has been gifted by God with specific spiritual gifts, which we sometimes refer to as talents and abilities. And looking to the scripture, and specifically the Old Testament, We see in the various building projects that occur from Genesis to Malachi that there are specific men who have specific gifts in the area of craftsmanship. We think of the erecting of the tent in the wilderness. There were specific men who were to be a part of that ministry. We think of the erection of Solomon's temple. God gave Solomon specific wisdom to order other men in precisely how that temple is to be built. And in the reading of the accounts of these buildings, we find that there are specific men mentioned by name who've been endowed with a unique ministry to do that which God wants. Ezra and Nehemiah, the same. Builders. Those who are craftsmen, those who work well with their hands, those who are visionaries, they can receive instructions from someone and put it into practice. And then we have the prophets and the apostles, those who are gifted with speaking abilities, those who can go to the Word of God, take the message of Scripture and declare it to others. Now, among these two gifts alone, we find that sometimes the prophets and the apostles do not do well with hammers, and other times those who do well with hammers should not be speaking in public. That's just the varying gifts of God. And we need to recognize which gift that God has given to us. You give a hammer to Pastor Casey, it's not going to go well. But if you give him the spiritual hammer. He can at least try to put a sermon together. And so it is with musical abilities in the Scripture. God has endowed David with the ability to play music in a beautiful way unto the Lord. Asaph was another man led of the Lord with a great musical ability. And as we think of practical things today, there are those among the church who are very musical and those... Not so much. Some can hold a tune. Others cannot. Some can stand behind a pulpit and sing a special. Others are best just fitting in with the congregation. That's not a slight on anyone. That's just how God has created us. And so it is with the gift of hospitality. Some of you women enjoy having people over to your house. You enjoy cooking. That is something that God has given to you. Others of you hate it, and you really have to work at it. Some can work well with kids. Others think every child is the son of a devil who needs to be paddled. Some of you know cars. Some of you are well in artwork and computers. Some of you have burden for the elderly. Some are naturally gifted with some particular talent and others are not. I think this is a practical meaning of what Peter is saying here is, as every man hath received the gift, first of salvation, and then a unique gift that God has given to you in a talent or ability. So use that to minister to another. God didn't give you these things so that you can hide it in a napkin. God gave you these abilities so that you can use it for the Lord and for the good of others. And then alongside of ministering the gift of grace that is given in salvation and the unique spiritual gifts given by the Spirit, I think it is safe to say, thirdly, that what Peter is speaking of can and should be applied to every physical gift that God gives. Be it our money, be it our homes, be it our cars, be it the food in our cabinets. All that we have ought to be used to minister to others in some way. As each of us receive earthly gifts from God, so let us minister the same one to another. And under this point, let me make sure that we emphasize, before I move on to the second main point, that everything that we are and everything we have has been freely given to us of God's grace. Paul asks it this way, what do you have that you did not first receive? James answers it. James chapter 1, verse 17, every good and perfect gift comes from above. From the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Everything we possess, everything that we are, is a free gift of God's sovereign grace. So this means that we are to have the mentality of stewardship rather than the mentality of ownership. What we have is not ultimately ours. It is a gift given to us by God. It has His initials on it. Have you loaned somebody a plate that you wanted to receive back and you made sure to have tape underneath that plate and write your initials on it because that's yours and you want it back? Well, everything we have has God's initials on it. It's not for your keeping. It's to be used for others. So this means... We ought to use everything God has given to us to reach others for Christ and to edify His church. And likewise, this reminds us once again of the importance of being committed to a church family. Every Christian needs a church family to minister their gifts among. Every Christian needs accountability where others can see your gifts being worked out. Prove me wrong if you can, but the way I see it, the context of every mentioning of gifts being used in the Bible is given in the context of being connected with a local church. The church has been given to us by God as an arena to grow and serve one another. So if you're being persuaded by this philosophy, well, I don't need others. I'll just serve them as I randomly brush shoulders with them in of Brothers. They call themselves a Christian. Come on, let's be real. Are you really going to get their number? Are you really going to take time to find some stranger in Stater Brothers and say, how can I practically serve you? God has given us His local church to be a part of so that we might be constantly reminded of the fact that we're not here for ourselves, we're here for God and we're here for one another. And as God's people do this together in unison, as they strive together for the faith of the gospel, it is that which the world sees and stands back and wonders, there's something different about that. Why else are we here this morning? We're here to be a visible manifestation of the world that God is worthy. God's ways are the right ways. And we have a mission to do. We're soldiers in a fight. Warring a great warfare. And soldiers need soldiers to fight. So remember this. If you're not part of a local congregation, if you're not part of a local church, you need to be. Point number one, the gifts God has given to us. Point number two, Peter spells out the type of stewards that God wants us to be, this type of stewards that God wants us to be. Now, Peter says, As every man hath received the gift, even so ministered the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And this word for good here means to be honest, to be pure, to be sincere, to be valuable, and to be worthy. And interestingly enough, it comes from the root word for good in the parable given in Matthew 25, 21. You remember the parable of the servant who received five talents, and he took those talents and put them to work for his master. And then as his master returns, seeing those five talents being put to work, the master says to his Lord, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things, I will make thee ruler over many things. So what does it mean to be a good steward? To be a good steward means to be a sincere steward. It means to be an honest steward, a hardworking steward. And above all, it means that we will be faithful stewards. And Paul speaks this very truth to gospel ministers in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 2. It is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. God does not say that it is required in stewards that a man be found successful. God does not say that it is required in stewards that a man be scholarly. God does not say that it is required in stewards that they be superior to others. He says it's required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Faithfulness is the key to being a good steward. This is what it means to be a good steward of Jesus Christ. To be a good steward is to be fully committed to His cause. To be a good steward is to be steadfast and unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And notice that word always. We're not talking about fair weather stewardship. Well, I feel like being good steward today, and I don't feel like being good steward tomorrow. You just don't understand the circumstances that are there in my life. So I'm just going to take three steps back. I'm going to cool down a little bit in my service for the Lord. No. Scripture says we have to be steadfast and immovable always. Well, I can do that when I'm young, but when I'm old, I'm retiring from work and the church. For my career and God's work. What? Where's that in Scripture? Be steadfast, unmovable, always, at all times, abounding, abounding in the work of the Lord. That's what it means to be a good steward. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. And looking to verse 11, you'll notice that Peter specifically highlights two particular gifts and how they ought to use their gifts for the Lord. Notice it. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth. So here we have a reference to a speaking gift and a ministering gift. If any man speak among the congregation, be it a pastor, be it a preacher, be it an elder, be it an evangelist, be it a missionary, if any man speak the word in a public setting, they are to speak As the oracles of God. What does this mean? This means that they are to speak only that which is agreeable to the word of God. They are to be Bible-saturated stewards. And Peter's going to highlight this in chapter 5. Regarding the responsibilities of the elders, the preachers, the pastors. They are to... Preach the word. And in their preaching of the word, they are feeding the flock. If any man speak, let him make sure that it is in agreement with God's holy will. That's lesson number one. And then Peter says, if any man minister, and this word for minister is the word serve, it could be highlighted in the office of a deacon. A deacon is to be one who is a servant. Peter says, let him make sure that he ministers through the ability that God gives. And the emphasis here is that all service toward God must be Spirit-empowered. In our ministering to others, we must rely on His strength and not our own. We must humbly admit that we can only do that which Christ commands of us in and through Christ who strengthens us. Shall we go back to the nursery ministry? What woman can endure minutes of babies screaming and crying for attention? That's a service of ministry. And if we're being real honest, sometimes the prayer is, God, I am in need of extra patience and grace this morning. I don't use hearing aids, but I'm tempted to buy some just to turn it on mute. How do we minister? We minister according to the grace and the strength that he gives. Remember, Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing in and of ourselves. Listen, we can't do what God wants us to do. Let's examine this at the whole of Scripture. You have a ruler that's unsaved who's treating you unjustly. That's what Peter's bringing to our attention. You are to minister unto Christ. How? In the strength that he gives. You have a spouse who wants nothing to do with the things of God. How in the world can you love your spouse as Christ loved the world, as Christ loves the church? You can't. You can't. Can you? No. So Peter is saying, in your doing what God wants you to do, you need to abide in the vine. You need to find strength in Him and not of yourself. Not a Sunday school teacher can teach class week by week without the strength of the Lord. You see, look at the God-focused emphasis in Peter's commands. In our ministering to God's people, we recognize that God has given us gifts by His grace. We recognize that our ministry is to be influenced by the truths of God In God's Word, and we are to minister being influenced by the power of the Spirit. We don't minister for our cause. We don't minister by our opinions. We don't minister in our strength or our wisdom. We minister for Him in the way that He has prescribed by His strength. Why? So that point number three, notice, He might be glorified. And this ought to be the driving purpose of all that we do in our service one for another. We do it so that God in all things might be glorified. Look at the whole of the text again. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as of the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things might be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So why do we do what we do? We do it to honor Him. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do it all. To the glory of God. We don't serve people with eye service as men-pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Our service for God is not about us. It's about Him. And we need to be careful of those satanic whispers of pride that desires the recognition and applause of men. It's possible in the service of the Lord to begin thinking, well, look at how much I've done. Look at the great sacrifices I'm making. Look at how many people I've witnessed to over the last week. I hope people see the picture that I posted on social media of me being a faithful steward of the Lord. If only I can get 100 likes and some nice comments. I hope others will recognize me for doing all that I'm doing. Let me say, pride is very subtle. We must be careful of it. We must be prayerful against it. And we must continually remind ourselves that our service for God is not about our glory, but His glory. The continual cry of our heart in the service of God ought to be Psalm 115. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Remember, John says, he must increase, we must decrease. And I like what Charles Spurgeon says. Spurgeon says, do not desire to be the principal man in the church. Be lowly, be humble. The best man in the church is the man who is willing to be a doormat for all to wipe their boots on. The brother who does not mind what happens to him at all so long as God is glorified. End quote. I fear that much of Christianity is about showmanship. I fear that much of what goes on in churches is about personalities and people. Theologically, we say it's all about God. It's all about God's glory. But practically, we puff out our chests. We like to post pictures online of ourselves so we can get a little pat on our back. But remember how Christ ministered. Jesus Christ came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus Christ ministered by the will of God in the power of the Holy Spirit with the aim that God and all things might be glorified. So let me ask you this morning what gifts has God given to you? Are you using your gifts for the advancement of his kingdom? And then what kind of steward are you? Are you a good steward? Are you an honest steward? Are you a faithful steward? Are you a Bible-saturated steward? Are you a spirit-empowered steward? Or are you a lazy steward? A greedy steward? An excuse-making steward? And then finally, who are you doing it for? Are you doing what you are doing to be seen of men... Or to honor the Lord. And once again, if you are here this morning, a stranger to God's gift of salvation, the Bible tells us today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. All the speaking of using our gifts for the Lord will mean nothing if we do not have the gift of salvation. So let me speak into your ear one final time. The wages of sin is death. You are a sinner before God. And you deserve death because of your sin against God. The wages of your sin is death. Not only physical death, but spiritual death. You deserve God's justice. But... The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And there are two things that you can do with a gift. You can receive it or you can reject it. And therein lies where all men will live one day. Going to heaven or going to hell will be determined by your receiving of God's free gift of salvation or rejecting it. Think of the two men who were crucified next to Christ. The one came to the understanding that he was a great sinner. The penitent thief, as we call him, was unworthy to be saved from his wickedness. And yet he cried out with a humble heart, Lord, remember me. He wasn't taken off the cross to go serve in a soup kitchen. He wasn't taken off the cross to do good for others. All he did is, from his heart, by faith, believe that Jesus had enough goodness to save him of his sin. And Jesus promised this man, Today, you will be with me in paradise. And the other man spoke blasphemies against the Lord. The other man said to Christ, If you are truly God... Get us down off of this cross. Save us from our physical problems, and we will believe you. He was tempting the Lord. He did not realize that Jesus Christ was saving sinners by remaining on the cross. He didn't realize that there's a greater need than physical salvation, and that need is spiritual salvation. The one received it. The one rejected it. Which camp do you belong to this morning?